Well, thank you, Mark and Jessica. Thank you for providing music for us for uh, these online mini services that we're having. Uh, it's great to be able to have that music and music that we know and love to be able to sing along, even from our own homes. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time to do that and to serve your church family in that way. Uh, we do have a plan in place for April now. The month of April, we have mapped out a little bit regarding what we are going to do as a church. Of course, it is nearly 100% online because that's the, that's the situation. Those are the circumstances in which we find ourselves. If you have not heard about the April ministry plans here at the church, please let me know, and I will get that information to you as soon as I can. We have a little calendar for you that you can print out and, and keep in your house, so that way you can be aware of what we're doing each day. Uh, I can email that to you. You can give me a call, and I can explain it to you. Whatever uh, needs to happen, we want to make sure that you are taken care of in that way. So April's very different. We're going to be looking at some very different things this month, uh, but trust in the Lord's timing. We will be back together in this building, singing and rejoicing as one body. What a, what a great time that'll be. Really looking forward to that. Well, um, we are going to be back in Deuteronomy today, so grab your Bibles and turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 12. We left off at the end of chapter 11 just a few weeks ago, and we are going to start in chapter 12 today, covering chapters 12 and 13. We are lifting the plane up, and we're taking a higher view over Deuteronomy now. We've been going pretty slow through the first several chapters, but now we need to cover more ground with each sermon. This is because we're getting into the law, and the law contains many things that do not directly apply to us in our context. And so we are going to be grabbing some things, drawing principles out, even though God spoke this to Israel in their context and the application was to Israel uh, directly in their context. We're going to draw the principles out that we can for the church today and talk about those and apply those uh, to our lives. So, we uh, want you to read through these chapters on your own in more detail. We want you to formulate questions from these chapters as you read through them, because on April 23rd, Thursday, April 23rd, we will have a live stream service here at the church. Uh, uh, Mark and Tyler and I will be here, and we'll answer your questions that you have from the book of Deuteronomy. And also, any questions that you have from our Acts study or from our other Thursday night studies, we want you to be able to ask those questions on that night, April 23rd, Thursday night at 7 o'clock. So whatever way you are watching this right now, you can watch on Thursday nights at 7 also, all right? Well, before we get started in Deuteronomy chapter 12, let's go ahead and share in a word of prayer together before we start unpacking what God has for us today. Father, we thank You so much for the time that we have now through technology. What an amazing thing that's happening. Uh, it's so different, and we in many ways are uncomfortable with it, but we know that You're using it right now to provide spiritual sustenance for Your people. Uh, we thank You that we have these means to be able to, in one shot, reach a bunch of people and to bring our own church body together. Uh, thank you so much for providing the means for this. And Lord, we ask that today as we look into your word, that this would be a 
greatly beneficial time for us as we seek to understand from Deuteronomy more about who you are and more about who we are uh, so that we might rightly worship you, that we might rightly live for you here in this place at this time. God, I ask that though I am through and through a sinner, both by nature and by choice, that I would not get in the way of your text this morning, but that you would use me to preach your word clearly, that you would anoint me to preach, that this would be a, a time of edification for all of your people. God, we thank you so much for your kindness toward us, for your patience with us, your overall extreme ultimate goodness that we have in Christ. And we ask that you would bless this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to talk from Deuteronomy chapter 12 about God's specific instructions for Israel's worship. We have to remember that we're talking about the people of Israel. We are taking ourselves in a time machine back thousands of years to uh, Moses' generation and their children. And we're going to be reading from Deuteronomy 12, verses 1 through 7 to start. And I want us to see God's specific instructions for Israel's worship. Deuteronomy 12, starting in verse 1. It says, These are the statutes and the judgments which you shall carefully observe in the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess as long as you live on the earth. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and burn their ashram with fire, and you shall cut down the engraved images of their gods and obliterate their name from that place. You shall not act like this toward the Lord your God, but you shall seek the Lord at the place which the Lord your God will choose from all your tribes to establish His name there for His dwelling, and there you shall come. There you shall bring your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, your, or the contribution of your hand, your votive offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. There also you and your households shall eat before the Lord your God and rejoice in all your undertakings in which the Lord your God has blessed you. We see several details here about the worship that Israel was to offer to the Lord and the way that He instructed them to offer their worship. In the book of Exodus, we start seeing a lot of these details. In Exodus, Moses is instruct, instructed how the tabernacle should be constructed and how the priestly garments should be put together. We see lots of intricate de details in Exodus starting in the late 20s and through the 30s, those chapters of Exodus. All kinds of great detail about how Israel is to worship in certain places, wearing certain clothes and doing certain things. And we see more of that in the book of Leviticus. And here in Deuteronomy, Moses is reiterating, he's repeating again the details about how the Israelites are to worship. And what God's concern for Israel is, what His ultimate priority for Israel is in these verses, is not that they worship, period, but that they worship Him the right way. And this is something that 
you just have to understand in these uh, passages, as we study the law, we're going to see God's great concern about right worship. Not worship, but right worship. Look with me at verse 8, Deuteronomy 12, verse 8. It says, You shall not do at all what we are doing here today, every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes. Moses is letting Israel know something is changing. Something is going to be different going forward. We're not going to do what we're doing here today, everybody just doing what's right in his own eyes. We're going to do what's right. Drop down to verse 13 with me. Deuteronomy 12, verse 13. Moses says to the Israelites, Be careful that you do not offer your burnt offerings in every cultic place you see, but in the place which the Lord chooses in one of your tribes, there you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I command you. There was a specific way to worship. There was a specific place to worship. Verse 28, one more verse to look at about this from chapter 12. Verse 28, Moses says, be careful to listen or to shema. It's been a while since we've said that word. So remember, that means listen. Be careful to listen to all these words which I command you so that it may be well with you and your sons after you forever. For you will be doing what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. The emphasis here in these verses in chapter 12 all the way up through chapter 28, the emphasis that we have in this part of the law is that Israel worships the right way. There are many people out there that will just tell you that, you know, as long as you worship, that's all that God cares about. As long as you're doing what's right in your heart and you follow what's right in your heart and you, you come to God just saying, um, you know, I, I love you and, and I just want to show that I love you. And well, however you do that, as long as you're, you know, have the right motivation in your heart, everything's fine. Well, it's about more than that, isn't it? There's a specific way that God instructs people to worship. We're seeing it right here. And there's specific places and, and things of that nature that God requires. He's not concerned about the mere instance of worship. He's concerned about right worship, worship that is done the right way. God does not accept every type of worship. He only accepts the worship that He commands and instructs man to perform. So let's seek to truly understand here in chapter 12 what God desires for Israel to do. Uh, you saw in those first seven verses that God is instructing them to tear down all the false gods, all those instances of false worship. God is saying, tear it all down, burn it with fire, destroy it, and let's build up what is right. Let's build up right worship. And again, he's speaking to the Israelites. And I know it's been a few weeks since we've been in the book of Deuteronomy, so let me remind you, the Israelites are God's people that He chose out of all the people of the earth. He picked a man named Abram. He changed his name to Abraham. He became the father of all kinds of grandchildren who were the nation of Israel. Uh, Abraham's grandson, Jacob, had his name changed to Israel. And Jacob's 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. They were taken down to Egypt. They were in slavery for uh, a long time, hundreds of years, and they came out of that place a great nation. They were delivered by God miraculously as a great nation escaping their oppressors. They were delivered 
truly miraculously, and, and God showed great signs and wonders, and over and over and over again they're told to remember how God did that in their lives, how God provided for them and secured them. They are to uh, remember always that God is good and faithful. And what's been happening over the last 40 years is that uh, Moses' contemporaries who lacked faith in God, who disobeyed God, they were set out to wander in the wilderness for 40 years because they did not have faith after seeing all the signs and wonders, after seeing what God had done to deliver them, they still lacked faith and could not enter into the promised land, the land that God promised Abraham, that, that first guy. All the way back then, He gave them this plot of land, but this generation was not allowed to enter that land. They were set to wander and to die in the wilderness, and their children were to enter that land. And that's who Moses is preaching to in Deuteronomy 12. And we saw there in verse 8, look at verse 8 with me again, where Moses said to these uh, children who have grown up, you shall not do at all what we are doing here today, every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes. As Israel was wandering in the wilderness, they were not allowed uh, because of just mere circumstance, they were not allowed to follow all the instructions from Exodus and Leviticus about the tabernacle and, and all sorts of other things. And it's really interesting. It struck me as I was studying this that their limitations in the wilderness are a lot like our limitations right now. While they were in the wilderness, they couldn't set things up the way they were supposed to be set up. And so they were truly wandering in their worship, seeking uh, in some instances to do what was right, but in many cases, like verse 8 says, seeking to do what was right in their own eyes seeking to do what was right in their own eyes. And so not only did they have to tear down all the false gods, uh, all the false worship that was set up in the land, but they also had to uh, kind of relearn what worship is. They had been worshiping the wrong way because they didn't have the proper circumstances to do all the things they were to do. And now they're entering the land, and it says uh, back in uh, those first verses that we were reading, uh, really verse 1, chapter 12, verse 1, that these instructions are for them to do in the land, to observe in the land as long as they lived on the earth. So now they're going into the land there to worship rightly. They're to worship in the sanctuary in the land. Verse 5, it says, you are to seek the Lord at the place that God will choose from all of your tribes. God was to choose a place for them to worship, and this is, you know, most directly, this is the tabernacle. God instructs them to worship in the tabernacle, and the tabernacle was mobile. It didn't stay in one place, but it moved around, and as God led them, they would move that tabernacle, and they are to worship in that place. Ultimately, with David, uh, there was a place for them to worship where God uh, sent the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord declared that there was a certain place where God was to be worshipped, and that place was fulfilled with the temple, Solomon building a temple in Jerusalem, a special place set apart for God's people. They were to worship in Zion. And so, uh, as verse 5 says, that as they went into the land, within that land, they were to worship God at a certain place. And at that place, verse 6, it lists out all the different things they were to do in that place. It says that they were to bring their burnt offerings, 
Burnt offerings, it's actually a reference to whole burnt offerings. That's a better way to understand that. When someone would offer a burnt offering, that's an entire animal that's put onto the fire and the whole animal is consumed. They're also to bring their sacrifices, verse 6 says. With the sacrifice, the meat then could be uh, kept and, and eaten by those making the sacrifice, and yet the carcass would burn. They were to bring their tithes. These could be tithes of different sorts, crops, spices, all kinds of things, even money. They were to bring those within that special place. The contribution of your hand, it says, and votive offerings and free will offerings. And each one of these is pretty unique to the individual. If someone made a vow, that's a votive offering. If someone made a vow to make an offering to the Lord, uh, a special offering, they were to bring that. If there was a spontaneous offering, a free will offering, and that was to be done in the tabernacle, whatever their hand could contribute as a sacrifice or an offering, that was to be done there in the tabernacle as well. And it says also at the end of verse 6, the firstborn of your herd and of your flock, sacrifices and offerings were to be made there in the tabernacle. So they were to go to a specific place, they were to perform a specific duty in worship to God. And this is not a comprehensive list that we see in verse 6. There were all types of offerings, uh, uh, thanksgiving offerings and, and uh, wave offerings and certain things that we see in Exodus and Leviticus. It's not exhaustive. There are all kinds of things they were to do in worship to God. But one thing you'll notice that these things have in common is that these are all things that people do to give to Yahweh, to give to the Lord, the God of Israel. What is the purpose of coming to God in worship? The purpose is to give Him something, to give God something. That's what these offerings were all about. And worshiping God is all about pleasing God. As they came to the right place at the right time under God's instruction, performing those, those right duties, what they were doing was giving something to God, and that, that pleased Him. That's what worship is. So much so-called worship today is about taking. It's about getting something. It's about going to a so-called church, sitting down, observing some entertainment, and having your ears tickled or having your heartstrings pulled and getting something out of it. Someone might walk away from a service and say something like, I didn't get much out of that today. Well, is it about you getting something? The heart of worship has always been, both in Israel's history and in our time now, the heart of worship is about giving Giving to God, giving of your time, giving of your gifts, giving of your finances, giving, and it pleases Him. It's a sacrifice that pleases God. And there are more details shared here in chapter 12. There's an eating aspect to all of this where he goes through, Moses does, and talks about from uh, verse 15 really through the rest of the chapter about how they are to eat, what they can eat, and how they are to do it. Within the dietary law uh, that Israel had received, there were certain things they could eat or not eat. But Moses says, look, when you go there, you can eat certain things and, and it's pleasing and good. Look at verse 15, chapter 12, verse 15. It says, you may slaughter and eat meat within any of your gates, whatever you desire, 
according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which He has given you. The unclean and the clean may eat of it, as of the gazelle and the deer. Uh, I love verse 20. Look at verse 20 with me. It says, When the Lord your God extends your border as He has promised you, and you say, I will eat meat, because you desire to eat meat, then you may eat meat, whatever you desire. This, is, this should be like a, a Christian man's favorite verse or one of his favorite verses, right? Uh, you get to eat meat. Isn't that great? Um, and it goes through and talks about how they are free to eat all kinds of things. And yet there's an exception that's made that they are not to eat blood. And this is consistent in the Old Testament law over and over again. The Israelites are told that they were not free to eat the blood of an animal. Uh, It's something that God instructed them multiple times, and there's a purpose in that. I want you to keep your finger here, but turn with me to Leviticus 17. Back to the third book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, chapter 17, starting in verse 10. Leviticus 17, starting in verse 10. And we'll read through verse 13. Again, Moses the prophet of God, being instructed what he needs to to say to the Israelites. So he's instructing now the Israelites with these words, Leviticus 17.10, And any man from the house of Israel or from the aliens who sojourn among them who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood." And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Therefore, I said to the sons of Israel, No person among you may eat blood, nor may any alien who sojourns among you eat blood. So when any man from the sons of Israel or from the aliens who sojourn among them in hunting catches a beast or a bird which may be eaten, he shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. And this is repeated in Deuteronomy chapter 12. You'll see it as you read on your own for some further details. God was very particular about this. No one was to eat blood. If they killed an animal that they were fine to eat, they were to let the blood out and cover it with the dirt. Because God says the life is in the blood, and He gave it to us to be poured out on an altar for sacrifice, for atonement to be made. There's something that God's showing them even within the dietary law. You you read through some parts of the Old Testament about what they can and can't do, what they can eat, what they can't eat, and you think, man, what, what is there for me to learn through all of this? Well, you can learn about, in the dietary laws, about the importance of blood how God revealed to them thousands of years ago that there's life in the blood. Which scientists were roaming the earth that knew that at that point? As we've grown in our study of, uh, you know, the human body and understanding how blood operates within the human body, we've only further confirmed that life is in the blood. And we see that there's a purpose in this, that the altar was, was put there, that the blood that God gives might be spilled on the altar. And this is all foreshadowing the final sacrifice of Christ, that Jesus would pour out His blood willingly, voluntarily, 
He would pour out His blood to make atonement for our souls. And so today, we are no longer under this dietary law. There are several passages in the New Testament that we could look at that show us that we are free from the restrictions that Israel had about what they could and could not eat. I, for one, enjoy my steak rare. I really like a rare steak, and I'm glad that I can do that. I'm very thankful that I'm able to do that because this, this whole purpose of restricting Israelites from eating blood was to set them apart in the world as a people uh, set apart for God, awaiting their Messiah, and then eventually for the Messiah to come and fulfill even those dietary laws. It's an amazing thing. And we have to understand that this is all spiritual. God never gives random rules. God never throws out commands just willy-nilly. God has a purpose in all of this. And what God is doing with His people is He is setting Himself apart, setting His name apart from all the false gods in the world. Uh, you know, who among the, the, all the inhabitants on the face of the earth during this time in Israel's history, who among all those people said, yeah, you should refrain from eating things with blood? Do you, do you think there were people who ate rare steaks back then? I'm sure that there were. But what God was doing was setting apart His name. The people who claimed His name were different. They were unique in the world. And He demands that worship, true worship, be set apart also. Uh, that as people come to Him in worship, it has to be different than that of the world. Because if that worship looks like what the rest of the world is doing, then there is nothing different about this one true God. But God is different in every way. He's better in every way. He is superior in every way. Therefore, worship must be particular. The way that His people live must be particular. It must be different. It must be holy. It has to be set apart. And so the Israelites were to take down all those false gods and to destroy their influence. Look with me at the end of chapter 12, verse 29. Deuteronomy 12 again, verse 29, it says, When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations which you are going in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, beware that you are not ensnared to follow them after, after they are destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, How do these nations serve their gods, that I also may do likewise? You shall not behave thus toward the Lord your God. For every abominable act which the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Verse 32, whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to nor take away from it. They were not to look like the world in any way. They were not to look like any of those uh, pagans who had false gods and false worship in any way. Every evil thing, everything God hates, they did. So don't do what they're doing. God hates what they're doing. The Israelites were to be different. They were to be careful to do all that God commanded them to, them to do through Moses the prophet. And they were to reject all other prophets. As they listened to Moses, the prophet they were supposed to listen to, they were to turn away from all false prophets. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. 
It says, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or to the dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear Him, and you shall keep His commandments, listen to His voice, serve Him, and cling to Him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death, because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God, who brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery to seduce you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from among you. They were to reject false prophets, and ultimately what this looked like was putting them to death. That's heavy. That's very weighty. That they were to take a false prophet and give him the capital punishment, the death penalty, for what he was saying and what he was doing. Notice that we are told how to test this false prophet. It says, again, in, in chapter 13, um, if a prophet or a dreamer, verse 1, arises among you, amongst you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and that sign comes true, verse 2, verse 3, don't listen to him. It, that's our test. That's how we are to tell if someone's a false prophet. And you might be thinking, I don't, I don't think this makes sense. Well, what God is saying through Moses here is there will be prophets or dreamers who come along, who have miracles, who have prophecies, and they will come true. There's something miraculous that they do. But if they are telling you because that, you look, hey, I, I did this and it was right. Because I was right, now follow this small g God. Then you know that that person is not a true prophet that that person worked those miracles by some other power. It's an interesting thing. The test is in the doctrine. The test is in being aligned with what God has said. The test isn't in the miracle itself. There will be people who perform signs and wonders with the purpose of pulling people astray, leading people in a different direction. And those signs and wonders don't make them legitimate, don't make their message legitimate. But those signs and wonders, it's just happenstance. They did it. So what? What's their message? What do they preach? What's the purpose of all of this? There are people today that like to go on the street and perform signs and wonders, and so much of it is just people being charlatans and none of it's real. But perhaps there's someone going along on the streets today performing all kinds of miracles and then telling us to follow the God of Islam or the God uh, of the Jehovah's Witnesses or the God of Mormonism. Just because they perform certain signs, just because they had some sort of prophecy, that doesn't make their doctrine legitimate. Their doctrine must be in accordance with with the Word of God, with His revelation. That is the ultimate test. They were to test people by alignment with Scripture. 
Remember in Matthew chapter 7, and Jesus talked about the judgment day, and He said, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this, 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 this in your name? Part of that is performing miracles. Part of that is prophesying. There will be people in the final day who stand before Jesus and say, look, we did all these things in your name, and He will say, depart from me, I never knew you. The test is in what they believe about God, and do they submit to what God has revealed. If someone comes along and teaches us incorrectly to go after another God, we reject their ministry completely. We reject all things that they do, whether or not it's in the name of Jesus, we reject it because there is only one true God and we follow Him. We serve Him. Look at verse 4 with me. I, I love these words here. We follow Him. We fear Him. We keep His commandments. We listen to Him. We serve Him. We cling to Him. That's our relationship with God. We are not to follow after false gods and false prophets. Even if those false prophets are family members, Look at verse 6 with me, chapter 13. If your brother, your mother's son, or your son or daughter, or the wife you cherish, or your friend who is as your own soul, entice you secretly, saying, let us go and serve other gods, whom neither you nor your fathers have known of the gods of the peoples who are around you, near you, or far from you, from one end of the earth to the other end. You shall not yield to him or listen to him, and your eye shall not pity him, nor shall you spare or conceal him. Drop down with me to verse uh, 10. So you shall stone him to death, because he has sought to seduce you from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. How seriously were the Israelites to take this command to watch out for false prophets and to shun idolatry. They were to take it incredibly seriously. The death penalty is what awaited false prophets, even those of the same family. They were to put allegiance to Yahweh above allegiance to family and friends. Again, this reminds me of Jesus' teachings, Matthew 10. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus talks about the cost of discipleship. And he says, look, I came to pit family members against each other. I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword, Jesus said, because he is so divisive. His lordship and authority is so divisive that it turns family members against each other. And so it was in the Old Testament with Israel. They were not to listen even to their own family if their family was leading them astray. And it extends to neighbors too. That's verse 12 and, and following through the end of the chapter. Uh, if someone in the same city does the same thing, you shouldn't listen to that person, but instead that person deserves the death penalty. The Israelites then were to eliminate any influence that false gods may have had, completely eradicate by killing the false prophets righteously in accordance with what God has said. And so now, having looked at all of that, let's write down just a simple definition of worship. There are lots of definitions out there, and there are many good ones. This is a very short one, 
to, to really have a, have a good definition of worship, it needs to be long. But this is a good short one, okay? We'll just say that. A short definition of worship. Uh, after all we just read, wouldn't you agree with me that worship is submitting to God as a continuous preoccupation, no matter the cost? Submitting to God as a continuous preoccupation, no matter the cost. Submitting to God as a continuous preoccupation, no matter the cost. That's true worship. Lots of people think that worship is a genre of music, that worship is uh, a dial on Sirius XM radio or whatever. That's not what worship is. Worship is whole life encompassing, submitting to God in every area of life, continuously being preoccupied with submitting to God, no matter the cost. For Israel, the cost was quite high. Can you imagine having to assist in putting a family member to death out of worship to God? There will be lots of secular people out there that say, How evil is that God that would tell you to do that? But that's just not the case. God is righteous. How evil would it be of God to deny true worship even to Himself? How evil would it be for God to say, false worship is okay? That would be evil because God is worthy of worship and God knows it. God is worthy of all honor and all praise and all glory. He is not like us. It would be wrong for us to say, worship me or you will die. That would be wrong. But God is not like us. God is totally set apart. God is eternal. God is unchanging. God existing outside of time and completely perfect in all the things that He says and does. He demands worship and that's good. And He demands holiness among His people. And part of that for Israel here in Deuteronomy 13 is that those who instructed them to go away from Him, those people were to be put to death. It was right for Him to command that. It was good for Him to command that. And as we read it today, not Israelites, not living as Israel lived, We need to recognize that God's commands are good and that God's particular uh, uh, regulations for worship are all good. This was a time of great change and challenge for Israel. Remember, these are the children of that Exodus generation who are looking to enter the promised land. They had to dispossess nations that were dwelling in the promised land. They had to relearn what true worship was. They're on the move. A lot of change, a lot of challenge for them. And so it is with us in this present moment. We're going through a lot of change, and we're facing a lot of challenge right now, aren't we? It's absolutely critical that we hear from God as to the details that He requires for Christian worship. It's critical that we hear from God to understand how it is we are to worship Him and to repudiate all other ways. God cares about how we worship. He gave specific instructions for Israel's worship, and He cares about how we worship also. 
In Israel's day, they experienced what can be called strange fire. Do you remember uh, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron? They had their little uh, fire pans and they made a strange fire to the Lord and He killed them on the spot. They did something they were not supposed to do in worship. God had not told them to worship this way and they decided to do it anyway. And God killed them right on the spot. Well, there's another instance of false worship. There are several instances of false worship in the Pentateuch. But there's another one I want to look at from Exodus 30. Turn with me back to the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, chapter 30, starting with verse 34. Exodus chapter 30, verses 34 to 38. This is about incense and how incense was to be used in worship. Look at what God says in Exodus 30, verse 34. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Take for yourself spices. And there are names of spices here that are really hard to pronounce. I'm not going to pronounce them right, so I'm just going to skip over the particular names. I trust that that's okay, and I trust that God won't strike me down for doing that, all right? But it says, Take for yourself spices, spices with pure frankincense. There shall be an equal part of each. Verse 35, With it you shall make incense, a perfume, the work of a perfumer, salted, pure, and holy. You shall beat some of it very fine, and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting where I will meet with you. It shall be most holy to you. Verse 37, the incense which you shall make, you shall not make in the same proportions for yourselves. It shall be holy to you for the Lord." Whoever shall make any like it to use as perfume shall be cut off from his people. They were to take this potpourri of spices and make an incense for God. And it says that anybody who says, oh, that smells nice. I want to use that as cologne or perfume or whatever. Anyone who takes this thing that's for God and uses it for himself to glorify himself, to lift himself up, that person is to be cut off, it says. Taking something that is supposed to be for God and instead using it to glorify man, that's an abomination to God, worthy of the death penalty. And we see this repeatedly in Israel's history, taking the good things that God gives and using them on yourself in order to exalt yourself. God says, no. It shall not be that way. But instead, worship is to be thoroughly regulated by the God of all authority and honor. God has the authority to regulate worship. He has the authority to tell us what to do and what not to do. He has the authority to enact certain consequences for those who disobey. He is good and just and perfect in doing so. This is why our doctrine, our belief of sola scriptura is so critical. Because how are we to know what God wants from us? How are we to know if we are obeying or disobeying God in how we worship? We look to Scripture alone. That's what sola scriptura means, Scripture alone. 
We believe that God is, and we believe that God has revealed Himself. Therefore, we seek to align ourselves with Scripture, and by that we know that we are in obedience to what He expects from His creatures. It was the issue for Israel, sola scriptura. How did they know if a prophet was false or if a prophet was true? Was he in line with God's revelation? If not, then he was a false prophet. Therefore, today, how can we recognize good preachers from bad preachers? We judge them through the Word of God. That's a good judgment. We are to judge them that way. That's a right judgment. How do we know if a church is doing something as the gathering that is pleasing to God? We look to Scripture. Scripture has the authority because it's God-breathed. It has the authority to tell us what is good and right and acceptable in God's sight. What we do with Scripture is critical. And just as there was strange fire then from Aaron's sons and from those who would abuse the incense, there really is a lot of strange fire now in our day and age. Many churches, and I'm using churches in quotations here because uh, they're not really churches, They call themselves churches, but they're not really churches. Many of these places are just performance-based circuses of man's ideas that lead to idolatry at every turn. It's just a, a show that's put on based on what man thinks would be fun to do. And it leads directly to idolatry. It takes people away from worshiping the one true God and leads them directly to worshiping themselves, to following after doctrines of demons. Strange fire. These churches are actually just entertainment-driven nonprofit organizations. That's all they are. They're designed to build self-esteem. They're full of men and women who are just totally incapable of handling the Word of God. They have sermons based on movies. They have music that not only sounds like the world's music, and that's a whole different issue. Uh, We could talk about that some other time, but it's music that is the world's music. There are churches that bring onto their stages in these buildings that they call worship centers, and they play music that is made by unregenerate, fallen rebels of God. People who hate God make this music and they play it in their buildings. Their whole purpose is to be relevant as they seek to build people up within themselves. Not to build them up in the Lord, but to build them up within themselves. They're keenly aware of strategy. They're focused on strategy and and building and growth and all of these sorts of things. Not focused on the Word of God, or the God of the Word. Simply put, as John MacArthur has said, those who offer self-styled worship are unacceptable to God, regardless of their good intentions. Self-styled worship is unacceptable, and those who perform it are unacceptable to God. There's a right way to do worship and a wrong way to do worship. Our world today and our nation 
is full of Christians who are actually false prophets leading people into false worship. And the proof that they have for what they teach isn't alignment with Scripture, but pragmatism. They can look at the things they say and do and, and, and point to numbers. They can point to earthly success, and that's their proof of their message. But what has Deuteronomy taught us about the message? It has to be in line with God's Word. What does Deuteronomy teach us about worship? It has to be in line with God's revelation. It's not about what works. It's not about what brings people in. It's not about what makes people stay. It's not about what makes people happy. It's about pleasing God, giving to God, submitting to God as a continuous preoccupation, no matter the cost. That's true worship. Now, as we think about this in our very present moment, we are doing something that's strange, aren't we? We trust that it's not strange fire. We trust that our motivations are godly. We trust that what we are doing in this moment is as in line with Scripture as we can be. And we ask God to lead us in this. We ask God to give us wisdom in this. We ask God to unify us in all of this. But in the midst of this, as we're staying at home, as we're on lockdown, as we've been given all sorts of orders, it is imperative that we maintain biblically defined worship, that we don't slide into the pragmatic thinking, that we don't get carried away by our own lusts and our own desires, but that we maintain worship that is biblically defined. We are not Israel. Like I said at the beginning, these verses that we're going through in the law do not have direct application to us. We draw out the principles and we apply those principles to us. And we understand that even though we are not Israel, God has told us how to worship Him. And God has set up regulations about how we are to worship Him. And we are to be supremely occupied with paying attention to what He has said. Now, at the moment, things are on pause. Our physical gathering together is on pause because we're taking safety precautions. So, let's recognize that together, that our corporate worship services are on pause. And there's great danger, if we don't recognize that, there's great danger to begin thinking that this is the new way of doing church. You know, if, if this is convenient for all of us, then, hey, what's the point? Let's just go completely online. Let's just make a virtual church. In fact, those exist. Uh, I, I'm not sure how in tune you are, and I'm sorry to introduce this to you if it's brand new to you because you don't even need to know about it. But there are so-called churches out there that are completely online that encourage people to log in, and that is their church, they call it. That's not church. That is not true fellowship. That is not obedience to God. There is no true loving one another, serving one another in those models of getting together. It's man's ideas based on pragmatism. So let's not think that this is a new way of doing church and we should all encourage, encourage this type of church because it's convenient. It's not what the Word of God says. The corporate assembly is essential 
It's essential to what church is, to what a local body is. Giving, serving, singing with each other, praying with each other, that's essential to what a local church is. So in your home, as you view this, just be careful. Be careful. This is not the new way. This is a temporary measure that we're taking because God cares about worship and how it's done. In your home, as you view this, you might start to think this is about you, and it's not about you and what you can get. Worship is about giving. It's about pleasing God. It's about giving to God. And let's remember these themes from Deuteronomy, that our giving to God, our pleasing God, can only be in accordance with with Scripture, His revelation to us. And worship is about submitting to God as a continuous preoccupation, no matter the cost. Cultural adaptation is not needed in this day, but what instead is needed is the gospel. And those things that we hold so near and dear from Scripture, the solas of the Reformation, Sola Scriptura, like I've already mentioned, that it's Scripture alone which guides us and has the authority to instruct us. Sola Christus, that it's Christ alone. He's our only mediator. He is our only King. He's our only Savior. Sola Gratia, grace alone, that it's only by grace that we are saved. Sola Fide, that it's only through faith that we are saved. And Sola Dea Gloria, that it's only God's glory. It's all about God's glory alone, not about our glory. We are not to be like those bad examples we've read about here in Scripture who want to go away and serve other gods, who want to uh, take God's good gifts and apply them to ourselves. We are not to come up with new ways of worship, but instead we are to continually submit ourselves to the God who has authority over us, to hear from Scripture, and to worship accordingly. That is what God has instructed Israel to do. That is what God has instructed us to do. And so as we read through these chapters in the coming weeks, we want to continue to see the principles here. We're going to see some details, but we want to see the principles for us and apply them to us rightly and grow closer to God and and grow more like Jesus in these days and weeks ahead as we go through interesting times, asking God for wisdom to lead us and how we are to worship Him. And let's go ahead and pray to that end together. Father, we do ask that our worship be sincere and sincerely right, that we would seek You with all our heart, but not just leave it there, but we would seek You with all our heart in accordance with Scripture, that we would seek You with all our soul, submitting to what You have said, that our continuous preoccupation would be to submit to You no matter what the cost, that our lives would be lives of worship, that we wouldn't segment our time and call it worship, but that we would continually serve You. And as we navigate these choppy waters that we're in, with opportunities to disobey at every turn, Lord, we ask that you would 
Cause us to be courageous by your Spirit, to be bold by your Spirit, that we wouldn't submit ourselves to pragmatism or to false prophets, but that with the wisdom you give, we would be able to spot those things and repudiate them in order to serve you and you alone. Lord, we thank you that Jesus has fulfilled the law. We thank you that we are not living at a time before Christ, but that instead we now live after the cross, able to know the gospel in its fullness, able to be temples of God ourselves, full of your Spirit. We ask that you would guide us by that Spirit, that he would instruct us from your Word as we continually seek to please you and to give to you in our worship. In Jesus' name, amen.